This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, the story of Dan Schulman, president and CEO of PayPal. Values have to be something that you act upon. If they are just on a wall uh, and you don't act on them, then they're just really propaganda. How Dan Schulman embraced social justice and weaved it into the values he's brought to PayPal. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When Dan Schulman arrived to PayPal back in 2014, the company was in a simmering conflict with the big credit card companies, a conflict that was on the verge of becoming a scorched-earth war. The credit card companies were angry because PayPal was discouraging customers from using credit cards on its platform. PayPal was angry because of the fees they had to pay to the credit card companies. On the day he arrived as CEO of PayPal... It's fair to say Dan Schulman had his work cut out for him. He eventually worked on a plan to create partnerships, which we'll hear about a bit later. But the other thing Dan Schulman did was to ditch the standard corporate playbook when it comes to issues of social justice. He didn't play it safe. When hate groups started using PayPal, he threw them out. He even banned conspiracy theorist Alex Jones from the platform and several others who've spread misinformation. When North Carolina passed a law that many saw as anti-transgender, Dan ordered PayPal to scrap plans to build an operations center there. In June of 2020, after massive demonstrations against racial injustice, PayPal committed $530 million in grants and funding towards Black-owned businesses. And in the meantime, none of these decisions have hurt PayPal's bottom line. To the contrary, the company is doing better than ever. Dan says a lot of his philosophy and approach comes from his childhood. His parents were both civil rights activists, and from an early age, activism was part of his identity. My mom pushed me around in a uh, baby carriage at civil rights marches in Washington, D.C. My dad was worried that I was going to be the youngest person ever to have their own FBI file. Um, And um, my dad was also a very courageous activist. Um, This is the environment that I grew up in. Obviously, your parents make a huge difference in the way you think about the world. And uh, 
My parents were always about civil rights and social justice. Dan played varsity football in high school, but he admits he barely got into college and didn't know what he wanted to do after. I saw this advertisement for, at the time, it was New Jersey Bell. It wasn't even AT&T yet that said, you know, we are looking for account executives, you know, salespeople, and a salesperson is like the quarterback of the sales team. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I've been a successful quarterback. Maybe I can do this job. Hmm. I mean, you say you say quarterback, but you were starting at an entry-level job, like doing what, like sales and marketing? Yeah, an assistant account executive, which is about as low as you can be right. uh, at the Bell system. Uh, it's the lowest level of management. And uh, I was earning... I think at the time about $14,000 a year, which was a little disappointing to me because I wanted $16,000. But um, I think what really made my career take off at AT&T was unfortunately kind of a tragedy that happened inside my family where my sister died of an aneurysm very unexpectedly. And it was one of these events that you know, fundamentally rewires your brain. Um, And it was a very, very, very difficult time. Before then, I had been very much oriented around my own personal success, and it was a lot about me. And then afterwards, because I had to take some time off, it was pretty devastating. I came back, and my team had really rallied without me and had done some incredible things. And uh, I remember having to present to senior management at AT AT&T what my project goals had been, how we had done. And I went in there and said, look, we've had incredible success, but none of it is due to me. I wasn't even here. And somehow that whole idea of recognizing how important your team is and giving them actually all of the credit, I don't know if it was coincidental or it was because that's actually how I felt about things going forward, but my career took off uh, at that point. Wow. I credit, you know, I wish my sister never died, but I credit her and what she taught me through that Mm. with so much of what's happened in my career, at least afterwards. Wow. I actually spent 18 years moving from first New Jersey Bell and then to AT&T at the uh, divestiture of the Bell system. And I had an amazing career there. Yeah. You know, eventually I um, was managing the consumer division uh, for AT&T, some 40,000 people in it, uh, about $20 billion of revenues. And so, and I was doing all of that. I think I was 39 years old or something like that. Hmm. Which is crazy to imagine now that that AT and T's consumer uh, long distance service was a multi billion uh, multi billion dollar business. I mean, sort of like how travelers checks were a big part of of American Express's business at one point, which just seems nuts. That long distance calls were a huge part of the way telecom companies made money. Oh yeah, but you know, it's so interesting to me. I I, I mean, I probably. That $22 billion revenue stream is probably in the single-digit billions now. I mean, that's how how much long distance has disappeared. I mean, 
think about it, not that many people even have a, uh, a landline in their home anymore. It's all about mobile. But that's what's happening in technology right now. That's what makes the world we live in so interesting, but also challenging because it's moving so quickly. I mean, whether it be, say, 10 years from now, the explosion of quantum computing, which is going to fundamentally redefine what processing is all about. I mean, just such a discontinuous manner that it's hard to imagine. And then you've got the explosion of machine learning and artificial intelligence and the explosion in data. And this is why so many companies struggle to keep up with it. I think the average age of a um, Fortune 500 company today is like eight years. And if you went back 75 years ago, it was something like 50 years. Yeah. It, it's just that it's hard to keep up with it all. And so in some ways, it's amazing to me that that revenue stream has practically disappeared. But in other ways, that is, that's part of the world that we live in today. In, in 2000, almost 20 years, I mean, you were with AT&T for almost 20 years, um, you yeah. left, um, you decided to leave and go on to Priceline. Was was your decision to leave? I mean, it seems to make sense. You know, did, did you did you sort of see the writing on the wall that, that telecommunications companies were, you know, going to become dinosaurs and uh, and and this internet thing was the, 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 the exciting, shiny new thing to be part of? Or was there a different reason behind your decision to, to go? Well, it was a big debate in my family. Um, you know, Priceline was a tiny little business at the time, maybe $10, 20000000 million of revenues, obviously growing very quickly, but from a very small base. And uh, when I told my dad that I was contemplating leaving, he thought I was crazy <laughs> to go do that. Absolutely crazy. And what I basically told him is that I didn't want on my tombstone to be written, you know, he presided an elegant retreat over the death of long distance, you know, because the best you could do was do an elegant retreat. There was no way that long distance wasn't going to shrink. It was going to be replaced by other forms of communication. And, uh, you know, looking back, I, I sure am glad that I did, but it, it was not with uh, some amount of courage to leave AT&T. So you leave and you join this company, Priceline, and um, what what was it like? I mean, this, this was like you, you got there right before, the, I guess, right probably right before or right around the dot-com crash? Right before the dot-com boom and crash. Right. Um, so <laughs> Priceline at its peak, I think it was valued somewhere around 30 or $40 billion, and at its low, it was valued at just a couple of billion dollars. Um, but I would say... I probably got a master's degree education at Priceline that uh, has helped me for the rest of my career. First hmm. of all, I got to meet Richard Branson uh, hmm. because we had been servicing Virgin, and he's the one that convinced me to uh, uh, to go and start Virgin Mobile uh, hmm. with him. Yep. But second, I also learned that even in the depth of all of the things that can go wrong, there are ways of thinking about businesses, of fixing them, of always realizing that you need to wait for the cool light of the new dawn uh, before you make decisions, because there may not be a solution to everything, 
But if you think about it thoughtfully and you have good people around you, there's typically a way around uh, different challenges. And, you know, at the end of the day, when Richard said, hey, look, you've done so many things at Priceline, you've taken out the costs, you've got it on a good foundation, would you join Virgin Mobile, Hmm. Um, which was a raw startup, by the way. And I I leapt at that opportunity. I want to I want to kind of dig in a little bit about Virgin for a moment um, because you were I mean it seems from the outset that it was successful you were signing up millions of users and you had these prepaid model but it it never became profitable as far as I understand um, what why what explains it No it was profitable um, you know we listed or struggled to become uh, profitable I should say Yeah no it was many years Yeah before it became profitable. But the reason for that guy is basically the way that the wireless business model works is that you need to acquire customers and and you pay to acquire that. That's your cost per net ad coming in. And the faster you're growing, the more your costs are because you're you're acquiring lots of customers and you're paying uh, for those customers. And then the service revenues associated with those customers come in over time. And Hmm. so ironically, the slower you grow, the quicker you become profitable. The faster you grow, the longer it takes you to become profitable. But over time, the bigger you are, the, the more successful and the more profitable. And then I remember one time where we had to buy handsets to go into retail. We had struck all these deals and I needed to buy like 40,000 handsets and, you know, that's before you have any revenues. Hmm. And that was going to cost us, call it $20, 30000000 million, and we didn't have it. Um, I, and I went to Richard and I said, look, Richard, we probably need to shut down the business because, you know, we don't have 20 or $30 million. We, you know, I've never met a wireless company that ever existed without having handsets out there. <laughs> People <laughs> need to have a phone. And he said... Nope, I am going to sell my favorite hotel property in the world to fund you. Wow. And I said, Richard, don't do that. I said, like, this business is really uncertain. We're just a startup. I mean, our chances of success, it's hard to measure. And I'll never forget what he said. He goes, No, I'm not. I'm betting on you. Hmm. And um, because I believe in you. Hmm. And I said, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all the responsibility that that puts on my shoulder. But he knew exactly what to say and what to do. And there was no way that I was going to uh, to let him down after that. And I remember when we eventually sold the business to Sprint for just under a billion dollars, being able to give him uh, something like a $250 million check uh, <laughs> from his original investment. And... Um, it wasn't with it without its ups and downs, but um, but at the end of the day, it really paid off for all of us. So after that that sale, were you kind of looking around for the next project, or because you you would go on to American Express, um, or was that did they kind of come to you and say, hey, I know that you know you're this this thing's wrapping up. Do you want to come come work with us? So um, the head of um, Human Resources for American Express was on the board of uh, Virgin Mobile. Right. So he, I always joked around with him that it was like a uh, a four year interview process uh, that he saw me in action in both uh, you know difficult times and really good times. But I had no intention 
of going onto Wall Street. Most people would consider me the opposite of Wall Street. I mean, I constantly dress in jeans and a sweater, never aspired to move into uh, financial services. This individual who was on our board said, you should meet Ken Chenault, who was running uh, American sure. Express, who I know you've yeah, interviewed. Been on our show, yep. And Ken was trying to set up a new division inside American Express to actually think about all the ways that technology were going to revolutionize the financial services. Mm. And he wanted to bring somebody new into American Express. And it took maybe six or nine months of um, courtship, uh, but it, it wasn't a straight path from uh, Virgin Mobile to American Express. So you get to American Express, and I, I guess your title was uh, President of Enterprise Growth. Um, and one of the, I guess one of the early projects you ended up working on was something called, that was called Bluebird, which was a prepaid card that American Express unveiled. And was the, the idea behind it was that, that it would be available to lower income people who had a hard time getting credit cards? Yes, and it was really kind of a uh, joint venture between uh, Walmart and American Express and to really try and figure out how could we create a value proposition that would um, be attractive to what we call the underserved population, the 70 million adults in the U.S. that live outside of the financial system. And before Bluebird, there were large monthly fees, transaction fees associated with every transaction. I mean, there were fees, both visible and invisible, almost everywhere in the prepaid industry. And um, we tried to create a, uh, a card that was really a customer champion card, really leveraging off the Virgin Mobile experience. And we did that. We redefined the prepaid industry. Um, and the prepaid industry was never the same. We took out a lot of the profitability of the industry, but we made the card something that was durable and over the long term was profitable, but didn't have all the churn uh, that was associated with these uh, cards that, frankly, were less than great for uh, that underserved population. That was... Um, Really, uh, I think for both the Walmart and the American Express team, really one of the prouder moments that we had. You were there for, I think, about four years before you were brought in to become the CEO of PayPal. I think you got there in September of 2014. At that time, PayPal was in the process of splitting from eBay. Like, from what I understand, everything was integrated, like the, the, the HR systems and, the, and, like, everything, the computer systems. And you, your job was to take, over, take it over and, and, and basically spin it out. Tell me about what, what you faced when you got to PayPal in 2014. Your point is exactly right. There couldn't have been two divisions of a company more intimately connected. I mean, every single part of our companies were connected from deep into data centers and deep into the infrastructure, software infrastructure of the business to websites that were fully integrated together where, you know, that PayPal and eBay were just as linked as wow. could be. We literally had a clock on the wall that would say how many days and how many hours 
till separation. We had a full action plan, both on the eBay side and the PayPal side. And it wasn't just, you know, separating. It was like, what does the agreement look like going forward? Like, what is the operating agreement that we're going to have as two independent companies that will govern our way of working together? So it was very, very complex, very, very difficult, but it was clearly the right thing to do. And if you look, obviously, at the uh, combined market cap of the two companies, which today is somewhere around $230, $240 billion, I think the combined market cap of the company at that time was maybe 50 or $60 billion. Wow. It, it clearly unleashed a tremendous amount of value and allowed each company to focus and create the right mission and vision and values to propel uh, each of our companies forward. And we were rapidly becoming two very distinct and separate hmm. entities inside of eBay. I, you know, I, I, I guess one of the first real challenges that you had to face was with credit card companies. Because from what I understand, right, it, it, the, the way it worked when you got there to eBay was um, if somebody purchased something and they used their credit card, PayPal would have to pay all these fees to the credit card company. So it was designed to really discourage people from using credit cards and rather to use money from their banks, uh, which really pissed off some of the big credit card companies like Visa and MasterCard. And, and there's kind of a, a, a kind of a war that was brewing, you know, when you arrived there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this was probably the single biggest and most important decision that I had to make with my team and, and our board. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. 
and Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. The credit card companies had viewed PayPal as a, uh, what they would call a frenemy. We obviously generated a lot of revenues because we were a good digital distribution solution for them. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, our default uh, or encouraging customers to use other financial instruments besides their credit card because we made a larger margin. And, um, you know, the the decision was not so much about the credit card companies. It was about what we were talking about before, Guy. It was about what does it mean to be a consumer champion? And does being a consumer champion mean giving customers the choice of paying how they want to pay, not how we want them to pay, but how they want to pay. The issue was like, well, what was that going to do to our business model? Understand that this defaulting to the uh, payment mechanism that was best for PayPal was also causing a ton of customer confusion. Hmm. Like we were taking from banks and consumers, you know, we're like, wait, I thought I was paying with my credit card. Yeah. There might've been some bank overdrafts. We had millions upon millions of customers who signed up for PayPal, gave us their credit card information. And we said, wait, you can't start transacting until you give us your bank account information. And they would churn off right away without making a transaction. And so what we decided to do was what we called full consumer choice. And that, by the way, the networks were like, that's fine with us. I mean, like we're willing to compete on our value proposition. We just don't want you defaulting. So the day I announced that, PayPal stock dropped by 9%. Wow. The day you announced that you would stop doing that, you would stop. Yep, that we would be customer champions and we provide choice. Hmm. And the market just felt like, okay, well, that's just going to destroy their margins. Mm. And I remember, God, this is so interesting, where like literally an hour later, a headline came out that says, market questions Shulman's strategy as PayPal stock drops 9%. Wow. And I thought to myself, isn't it horrible that you know people are talking about strategy and measuring it in within an hour of us <laughs> announcing it? Um, like, can't you give me a week or like at least 24 hours? And um, I think really the rest was history on that. Obviously, giving consumers choice unleashed partnerships with networks and financial institutions. It reduced confusion by customers, our new ads, you know, new customers coming on skyrocketed. And, and had you not made that decision, the, the big credit card companies would could have decided to uh, put all of their resources into a business to compete against you and, and to crush you. So I guess uh, over the years, there have been a lot of potential competitors uh, to PayPal. But what's really like a philosophy that I have, which I think is uh, I've learned from all of my experience in martial arts. I, I've done martial arts for a for a long you time, do I Krav practice, Maga, right? Uh, the Israeli, yeah, Krav Maga. And you pr- practice it every day. Yeah, practically every day. Wow. And uh, you know, Krav Maga is especially a somewhat you know effective, maybe brutal form of uh, of martial arts. 
But the overriding philosophy of Krav Maga is the best way to win a fight is to not get into a fight. Right. And I really felt with like all the credit card companies, with the financial institutions, with tech companies, that if we could demonstrate how we could be great partners together, have the best of what we had to offer to customers and the best of what they had to offer customers could come together, that neither of us could do all of it alone, but together we could create value propositions that nobody else could replicate and would be the best in class for consumers and merchants, that was the best possible way to go into the market. PayPal is a one of the sort of the, the linchpin businesses in Silicon Valley. It stands among among peers like like Twitter and, and Google and Facebook and all these different companies. And I mean, most companies uh, traditionally have have avoided being political or being uh, being perceived to be political or taking any kind of stance that would be perceived to be political. And you have been pretty comfortable with it. it sounds like you've been pretty comfortable. Like I think. In 2016, PayPal had, had plans to, to have an operations center in North Carolina and then scrapped it when the state passed an anti-trans bathroom bill. Where, where does that come from, that, that comfort with taking a stand and not worrying about who you alienate? Well, I think it, it isn't actually political, although I understand why people think it's political. Sure. These are all values-based decisions. And the number one value that we hold at PayPal is about diversity and inclusion. That is our number one value because our mission as a company is to assure that managing and moving money is a right for every citizen, not just a privilege for the affluent. And that's a very inclusive mission. And therefore, our values also need to reflect that. And so my view on this is that values have to be something that you act upon. If they are just on a wall uh, and you don't act on them, then they're just really propaganda. And that's worse than probably having no values at all uh, because you're not, you're not true to those values. So when North Carolina happened, people said to me like, yeah, it must have been a really difficult decision. The truth of the matter was it wasn't a difficult decision. I saw the governor talking and he was basically saying, you know, a lot of companies are signing petitions. Nobody's taking really any action. You know, we're going to be fine here in North Carolina. And I literally walked down the hallway to uh, our head of corporate communications and said, look, in a week, we're going to pull out of North Carolina. Hmm. And I called the governor and I said, look, if you rescind HB2, we'll stay in. But if you don't, we're going to leave. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't realize at the time just how public that statement would be. Um, You know, it was news everywhere Mm -hmm. and it was very lonely for a while. I received a lot of personal threats, a lot of death threats. You know, I had to have security go into bathrooms before I went in there uh, to search and make sure nobody was waiting for me in there. It was lonely for a while, but then, you know, I come from New Jersey, as you know. um, And then when Bruce Springsteen actually canceled his concerts in North Carolina. You know, I was like, okay, good. Bruce and I are in this together. Um, And then other companies started doing that. The NCAA did, the NBA did. And, you know, we made a real difference in what happened there. Um, This same thing, Guy, happens in taking a stand for who can use your services and your platform. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, we created an acceptable use policy that bans people or organizations from using PayPal or Venmo to raise money for anything that has to do with violence, uh, racial intolerance, or hate. Hmm. You know, the internet can be a little bit of a lawless place. And um, we probably take down hundreds of sites a month that violate our acceptable use policy. Hmm. Uh, You don't hear about most of them, but we're quite vigilant on it. Many companies talk about values, but... um they're afraid to take positions that would be perceived to be political. Um, it's a little bit different now with what's happening around the the country and the world uh, with the demonstrations against racial injustice. Um, a lot of companies are, are making statements, um, but there's been a lot of criticism about it too, that it's it's performative, you know, that it's um, – mm-hmm. a lot of this is, is just companies kind of responding to the moment to make sure that they, they, they continue to appeal to their millennial and, and Gen Z uh, consumers – so let me ask you about about these movements. I have to imagine this is a conversation that's been going on um, at the executive level at PayPal about, you know, who are we? What do we do? What's our response? What do we have to, as a company, change and, and take actions internally? Is that, I mean, is that happening? Yeah, I think um, the last several weeks have unleashed introspection and reflection inside corporate America, I think inside all of our households. Hmm. And um, that sense of emotion and um, sometimes despair, sometimes exhaustion, sometimes determination was felt throughout PayPal, but probably most acutely by our black colleagues. And I spent, you know, at least two weeks talking to black leaders inside PayPal, black leaders across the country, listening, trying to learn, trying to understand. And uh, basically where we came out, Guy, was that it was not enough for us to condemn racism, but that As a company, we needed to be anti-racist. And as I explained on an all-employee video conference, uh, which is the way of our world these days, basically I said, what it means to be anti-racist is it means that we are part of the fight, that we are willing to do the work to address systemic racism and really what is distinctively something PayPal can do is to try to address some of the racial wealth gap that has existed in our country and has not been closed whatsoever since the last civil rights movement in the 1960s. And we have a distinct way to go and do that. So we made a $530 million commitment to help start the ability for Black-owned businesses, for Black and minority communities to start to have capital available to them uh, so that Black businesses that have typically received less loans and equity infusions than other businesses across the country that we would give right now, today, 
$10 million, not of loans, but of grants to Black-owned businesses that have been hit two times as hard as other owned businesses in COVID-19 who just need cash to survive. And the other thing, Guy, that we do is our products and services themselves should be able to help here. You know, we are, most people don't know this, we are one of the top five providers of working capital to small businesses in the United States. Hmm. We've done some $15 billion of loans over the last several years. Interestingly, 70% of our loans go to the 10% of counties where 10 or more banks have closed branches. And banks close branches where the medium income of a neighborhood is below the national average. Why? Because they need a certain amount of deposits for those branches to be profitable. And so if they can't get that, those branches aren't profitable. But we can go in there and use technology to basically very disproportionately lend into those lower income neighborhoods and therefore disproportionately uh, help minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses. So it's not just about the $530 million, but it's also about what do we do day in and day out to help uh, the most vulnerable segments of our population who most need our help. When you look back at this period in, in five or 10 years, um, where, where most of your workforce presumably right now is, is, is working remotely, when you think of all the challenges facing you know, many companies, including PayPal right now, what do you want to say you know, that, that I took from this period and, and made my company better, made me a better leader? I think all of us uh, who lead companies can take away from this is it's actually possible to do what was practically impossible to imagine in a short period of time when you have no choice. For instance, if I had told my team a year ago, I want 100% of our workforce to work from home. First of all, they would have kind of said like, well, that's not a great idea. Our productivity will go down. We're all about collaboration as part of our culture. You know, there's security things we need to think about. It'll take us two to three years to do this. And by the way, had I told them I want it done in two to three weeks, they would have thought I was crazy. Hmm. But that's what happened. You know, in two to three weeks, we were able to do something that was massive and we would have thought was impossible to do a year ago. You know, I've been surprised by the enhancements in productivity that I'm seeing. You know, we're probably doing 15 to 20 percent more software releases uh, than we did when we were at the office. Hmm. Um, and uh, we just need to think about what does an office look like? And we're spending a lot of time thinking uh, about that. What are the benefits? But clearly there is a large part of our workforce that will want to take advantage of work from home yeah. um, for the foreseeable future. Can you imagine a future where you don't have to live in the in, in the Bay Area? You know, I mean, where you don't have to come to headquarters, where you can live in, um, you know, some rural part of California instead of driving into Palo Alto every day? Yes, I can. I, I also think it's going to open up 
our ability to recruit the very best talent from around the world. Like <laughs> if somebody is in West Virginia or in Tennessee or Mississippi or California, let's recruit the best talent because now we understand that actually coming into headquarters may not be as important as we used to think it was. I remember many, many years ago, being first to the office and last to leave was a way that people measured yeah. how dedicated you were, you know? And I, I think those times have fundamentally changed. When you think about how you approach leadership, right? And, and, I, and I, have, I have to assume it's, it's evolved and changed over time since you're, you're, you know, the first kind of responsibility you were handed at, at AT&T to where you are today at PayPal, which by the way, how many employees do you oversee at PayPal? About 25,000. Wow. This is enormous workforce. Yep. Um, how do you how do you make sure that you're getting truly uh, unfiltered feedback? You know, because when you're when you're the CEO of a twenty five thousand person company, it's very easy to be surrounded by people who are going to say, "Great job," you know, "Great idea." But how, how do you make sure that actually you have people tell you that's that's not right or that's not going to work or this is a mistake? What's your strategy for doing that? Well, I think that comes from one, being authentic, being very willing to say that you don't know all of the answers. The moment you think you know it all is the moment that your company starts to fall behind. I think we just need to be, you know, not know-it-alls, but really people who are constantly trying to learn and gather more information. And that comes from talking to people, from being authentic, from listening, by treating people with respect, by when they say something to you, you listen, you take it into consideration, and you feed it back so that people know that you heard them. The other thing is you need to take care of your employees. Like I, One of the things that I fundamentally believe in is this idea of this, what people have now called it multi-stakeholder capitalism. You know, as a CEO, I have several constituencies that I need to satisfy. I need to satisfy my customers. I need to satisfy regulators. I need to satisfy shareholders and I need to satisfy my employees. But the number one constituency that I serve, number one, is my employees. <laughs> Looking carefully at are they financially healthy? Are they making enough money where they're not struggling to make ends meet at the end of the month? And what I found, Guy, for my entry-level employees and for our call center employees, some eight or 10,000 of our employees, is when I did the survey, two-thirds of them were struggling to make ends meet at the end of the month. Hmm. Our employees at that level only had, like, call it four to six percent of their income uh, was uh, was disposable. So no wonder they were struggling to make ends meet. And we decided that we needed to set a target of twenty percent net disposable income for all of our employees. And so we lowered the cost of of healthcare and benefits by sixty percent, six zero percent for that set of employees. We gave every employee 
uh, equity in the company so they could share in our success. And the cost of doing that is far outweighed by the benefits we will get over the medium to the long term in the ways that we serve customers. And so I just think you need to think about your constituents. You need to, to act as a leader in a compassionate way, in an authentic way, and to realize that you're in it together. Like the only thing you have, this goes back to what I learned when my sister died, is, you know, yeah. this is one team. And uh, if you can have one team inspired by the mission, inspired by the values, and you act on them, then there's really nothing you can't do as a company. That's Dan Schulman, president and CEO of PayPal. And since Dan joined the company, PayPal has doubled the number of accounts it serves, over 305 million businesses and consumers. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.